right, welcome to another episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. I'm also the president of the Michigan Hemingway Society. I started to become interested in Northern Michigan's Hemingway connection in 1999, which was the centennial celebration of his birth. I toured Windermere Cottage, the family's first cottage on Walloon Lake, and felt a deep connection with a city boy from Oak Park that would travel all the way up to Northern Michigan to spend months at a time in what was then a very, very rustic environment. I had spent my boyhood summers in a very similar way over by Johannesburg, Michigan with my family on a little small private lake. I really enjoyed his writing style, especially when there was so many references to our area. Everyone always asks about the iconic Key West version of Papa. Want to remind me about the fact that they'd been to the Key West house, they'd been to Cuba, they'd been to Paris. But not many people are as familiar with the young Hemingway, whose 23 influential summers on Walloon Lake inspired such classics as the Nick Adams Collection most of which take place right here in northern Michigan and are very autobiographical. Hemingway would often state that Nick Adams is to Ernest Hemingway as Huck Finn is to Mark Twain. He really admired Mark Twain and considered Huckleberry Finn to be one of the best pieces of American literature ever written. In 1898, Father Clarence, a doctor, and Mother Grace, an opera singer and musician and artist who earned more than her husband giving music lessons, made their way, their first visit from Oak Park, Illinois, to northern Michigan. Uh, Before leaving, they had purchased 375 feet of beach on Walloon Lake and started the construction of a 20 by 40 cabin. The total cost for this whole construction and the property was about 900 bucks. If you put that in comparison right now, 375 feet of property on Walloon Lake would be about $14,000 a foot, so not a bad investment for the Hemingways. The first years he spent here were with his mother, father, and older sister who was raised as his twin, even though she was a year and a half older. Eventually, there would be six children, including his sister Carol, who was born at the cottage. It was quite a traumatic birth, and the memories of that most likely inspired Hemingway's famous story, Indian Camp. Travel from Oak Park would have been quite an adventure for the Hemingway family, and it would have started out with a horse-drawn carriage taking all of their luggage to the train station, train station to the boat yards in Chicago, about 17 hours of transit on the Manitou, which was a big steamer, 273 feet long, that came from Chicago to northern Michigan a couple times a week. They would have landed in Harbor Springs, Michigan. From Harbor Springs, they would have taken the railroad around the bay, stopping in Weequitonsing, Roaring Brook, Manaqua, Bayview, eventually ending up here in Petoskey, where they would jump trains to a dummy train at the suburban station. Dummy train because they were often seen going nowhere, as people would say. From there, they would land in Clarion, Michigan, transfer again, and wind up right at the foot of Walloon Lake. Once they reached Walloon Lake, there'd be a boat waiting for them, and that boat was named the Tourist, famous for only sinking once in a while. The ride to their house would have been maybe half a mile up the lake, and they'd be dropped off about a quarter of a mile from their actual cottage, and that meant transferring all of those boxes and suitcases another quarter of a mile to the cabin, and once they were there, they were there. If we compare that to the are we there yet that we hear every day on car trips now, I think the Hemingways had us beat there. The minute they reached the cabin, the first thing was opening up the boxes that contained the food, getting into the ginger snaps, and then swimming, or more specifically, they would be skinny dipping usually that first time at Walden Lake. So you figure at this time of Victorian suits, which I don't call them swimming suits, I call them sinking suits. When you're wearing six pounds of wool, it's kind of hard to stay afloat. So many of the good things we associate Hemingway with, the fishing, the camping, the hunting, the love of nature, the fact that he was an avid outdoorsman, 
all came from that love of northern Michigan in those early summers spent here. His father respected nature. If you shot it, you eat it. One time a porcupine attacked some animals in their neighbor's adjacent barn. Hemingway was sent to shoot the porcupine. He and his friend actually did shoot the animal, and then they cooked it for 12 hours and had to eat it. Thirty-some years later, his friend remembered just how terrible that porcupine that Dr. Clarence Hemingway made them eat tasted. Hemingway loved talking about the Native Americans that he encountered and the lumberjacks each summer. He'd go home and tell his friends about the wild northern Michigan woods, and these inspired so many of his great stories. In 1905, after the passing of Grace, his mother's father, Hemingway's grandfather, the Hemingways built a new house in Oak Park, Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired, and just around the corner from Frank Lloyd Wright's house. They also purchased 1,700 feet on the opposite side of Walloon Lake and 40 acres. If you can imagine the value of that property today, that property now, a majority of it is Camp Michigania, a retreat for the alumni from the University of Michigan. In 1928, when Hemingway's father unfortunately commits suicide, there's letters going back and forth about the assets and liabilities that they have in the family, and they list all that worthless property in northern Michigan. I tell you what, it's one of those times where if hindsight was possible. By the time he was 14 years old, Hemingway was put in charge of that farm. That's probably the last time we know of him doing any manual labor. In 1919, Hemingway's mother, Grace, would build her own cottage on that side of the lake which she named Longfield Farm, and the cottage was Little Red Top. She used this cottage to escape the family, and this caused quite a bit of a rift. It's said that when she wanted to come back, she would raise a white flag, and Clarence would look across every morning to see if she was waving this flag, and then send one of the children over to uh, pick her up. And every once in a while, he would sort of ignore the fact that she was standing on the dock waving this white flag. Hemingway was always very self-conscious about not attending college, and every time someone would bring up the fact, why didn't he go to college, he would comment that his mother spent all of his tuition money on that cottage of her own. This is absolutely not true. Hemingway had every opportunity to go to college, and he basically was supposed to follow in the path of his father and become a doctor. But Hemingway had plans of his own, and that was as a writer, first of which he will start as a journalist. Proximity to Horton Bay will provide Hemingway with the friendships and connections that will change his life forever. At 14 and 15 years old, Hemingway took walking trips to northern Michigan most of the time being let off at the lower part of the peninsula, the lower peninsula, Michigan, on the west coast. He and his friend would walk through the woods and quite often just jump the rails. If you can imagine letting your 14- and 15-year-old son come up through those rustic woods via train, jumping on and off these moving trains, maybe a little too much for a boy of his age. In 1917, Hemingway graduates high school. Instead of going to college, he makes plans to go to Kansas City to become a reporter. But there's going to be one quick trip up here to northern Michigan before he leaves. They actually drove up that year. It was the first time they tried to make that trip in a car. And instead of a 24-hour trip, the trip lasted upwards of five days. The roads up here were just not quite ready for that kind of travel at the time. Hemingway gets to Kansas City, and he's living with his uncle, his father's brother. And he gets a job at the Kansas City Star. As a Kansas City Star reporter, Hemingway's giving a pretty important beat. He has the hospital and police station to cover. And in Kansas City at that time, that provided him with a lot of activity, way more than a young writer would see to this day. Hemingway's faced with quite a bit of excitement, once being trapped under a car while machine gun fire pinned him there during a shootout in Kansas City. One of the major things that happens to Hemingway in Kansas City, though, is he's giving a handbook. And the handbook talks about how to write as a Kansas City star reporter. Minimum adjectives. 
short decorative sentences. Keep the paragraphs short. Figure out what you're talking about without telling him. Let him absorb the story. These are all elements he will incorporate into his own revolutionary style of prose in future years. As Hemingway's settling into his job at the Kansas City Star, World War I is raging on. Both of his grandfathers had fought in the Civil War, and Hemingway felt that it was his duty to join the U.S. Army. He was rejected because of a defective right eye, which he claimed came from a boxing accident, and that was simply not true. But he will get the opportunity to wind up doing his part when a group of Red Cross recruiters come through the office. Hemingway winds up in Italy as an ambulance driver for the American Red Cross. Even though Hemingway's official job was an ambulance driver, we have pictures of him sitting in these ambulances, but we don't feel that he ever went on one documented mission. He was basically riding a bicycle around, handing out chocolate bars and cigarettes and trying to keep the morale up of his fellow soldiers. Not quite the stories that you're going to come back and incorporate into A Farewell to Arms, which is his remembrance of his time in World War I. Just a few weeks shy of his 19th birthday, Hemingway will receive over 120 wounds when an Austrian motor comes over the front lines and blows up in close proximity to he and a couple of other friends who are entrenched in a foxhole. Hemingway felt his spirit rise and then fall like a handkerchief, and then immediately after he felt that his boots were full of hot water. There were two gentlemen standing next to him when this motor blew up, and one of them was obviously dead. Hemingway will grab the other gentleman, throw him over his shoulder, and as he's retreating, he'll take a 45 caliber bullet to the knee and to the ankle, which topple him. When he wakes up in the triage center, he's being given his last rites by an Italian priest. Hemingway was lucky enough to not come home as a double amputee after the traumatic destruction that was done to his legs. He was basically considered a hero by the Italians for the attempt to save this fellow soldier. While Hemingway is recuperating in a hospital in Milan, two major things will happen. Everything in Hemingway's life seemed to happen in twos. When Hemingway is released from this hospital bed, there's an armoire at the foot of his bed that's full of empty cognac bottles. Basically, Hemingway wasn't getting enough morphine. He wasn't considered the worst wounded out of the group in his hospital. So he's trying to take care of some of his own pain by anesthetizing himself. Probably the first time we know of Hemingway drinking. The other major thing that happens is he falls deeply in love with his nurse, Agnes von Kurowski. Agnes was much older than Hemingway, but he's very much infatuated with her and they spend several months as boyfriend and girlfriend before Hemingway is sent home to Oak Park to recuperate. After returning to Oak Park in 1919, Hemingway is shell-shocked. He's suffering from PTSD. He's very much at the hands of his parents who are asking him, when are you going to get a job? When are you going to work? And he's, he's not well, even by his own accounts at this time. And he'll start writing again. During this time, he's corresponding with Agnes von Kurowski, his nurse, who he's deeply in love with in Italy. And she's sending him these letters. And if you get a chance... Penn State has recently released the first of 17 volumes of letters of Ernest Hemingway, containing thousands and thousands of letters. And in these letters are the letters between he and Agnes von Kurowski. And anybody who's ever been broken up with somebody or by somebody will feel the tension in these letters. Hemingway's writing one letter to two letters a week, and he's getting maybe one or two letters a month back from Agnes. And you can feel that things just are kind of changing she mentions that there's a 14-year-old boy that's very infatuated with her. Of course, Hemingway at 19 is already too young for Agnes, so he's not too concerned about this. In March of 1919, Ernie receives the Dear Ernie letter. Basically, Agnes is breaking up with him. She tells him theirs was a boy-girl love affair. She felt more of him like a little brother. She knows he's going to be a great writer, but ultimately, this relationship's not going to last. She also includes the phrase, it's not you, it's me. The classic, right? This is absolutely devastating to Hemingway. 
and he immediately makes his way to northern Michigan to recuperate and hide out at his Uncle George's house over in Boyne City. This is early spring of 1919. Finally, the summer of 1919 arrives. Hemingway's kicking around with his friends. They're camping, swimming, and having a great time. He always knew of the cathartic and rejuvenative qualities that were known here in Petoskey, Michigan, and I think that's one of the reasons he chose to come back here to recuperate. And then also he could find a worse place to be than out on a Walden Lake for the summer. Hemingway's having a good time getting back his verve, and ultimately one day he checks in to the Horton Bay General Store, and there's a letter to him addressed from Agnes von Karowski, the woman who had just previously broken his heart. Hemingway opens the letter, and in it she explains that since her name is von Karowski, in America that does not give her distinction of nobility, and she has been rejected by the family of the gentleman who proposed to her. So she's sort of inquiring if maybe there's just another chance at the two of them. Hemingway doesn't respond to her immediately, but does make sure to invite her to the wedding when he's married in Horton Bay in 1921. And he does include the fact that although she had complained that he was a little too young for her, he does make mention that his future wife, Hadley Richardson, is about the exact same age as her. Hemingway ultimately jumps train, heads to the Toledo Club, where he drinks a record number of champagne cocktails before Prohibition is enacted, and he remembers passing out, staring up at the sky, watching the stars spin. From there, he jumps on another train, heads to Grand Rapids, which he said is the most boring town he's ever been in, and then in October of 1919, he will wind up and Petoskey again at the Cushman Hotel. On the stationery of the Cushman Hotel, he'll write his father a letter stating, I'm not coming home. I've decided to become a professional writer of fiction, and I've taken up residence at 602 State Street, and it is there that he begins his career as a professional writer of fiction. Several things will happen between October and January. If you're going to make raisin wine on your radiator, it's best to do it with the judge's son. So he and Dutch Palethorpe, one of his good friends, were making their own liquor during these days. Hemingway's sort of obsessed with alcohol at this point. It helps to deal with the insomnia and the PTSD that he's suffering at this time. There were several parties, one including a famous party that took place at the Ramsdale Cottage over in Bayview at this time. If you're going to sneak away with a bunch of guys and a bunch of girls and drink illegal alcohol during Prohibition, what better place to do it in Bayview with 450 empty cottages? And again, you've got the judge's son with you just for a little extra protection. As the winter progresses, Hemingway's writing away and submitting stories He's not writing for the Tosky News Review or any local publications. He's going for the bigger publications. And he's going for Saturday Evening Post, Collier's Magazine. But he's getting letters of rejection that are somewhat encouraging. But again, nothing solidifies during those three months. He becomes very frustrated. And he's given the opportunity to take over the Conable's house in Toronto. Ralph Conable was a very wealthy person here in Petoskey. And he was also vice president of Woolworth & Company, Canada. Hemingway decides to take the job in Canada. He heads to Toronto in 1920. The picture we have of him departing is the picture that was used for the statue we have that we've dedicated to Petoskey, Michigan about five years ago. That statue stands on the exact site of the entrance to the Cushman Hotel, so it's kind of fitting that it came full circle there. Hemingway heads to Toronto, where he's in charge of taking care of Ralph Conable Jr. while Mr. and Mrs. Conable go to Florida. If you can imagine in later years telling everybody that you had Ernest Hemingway as a nanny, I think that'd be kind of a, a unique experience. While in Toronto, the Connables introduce him to the editor of the Toronto Star, and Hemingway will take a reporter's job there. But when he went to Toronto, he made the rule that he would take the job for the Connables only if he could be back in northern Michigan for the opening of trout season, which he did in April of 1920. He'll continue writing for the Toronto Star for years, first with small sketches that take place here in northern Michigan, specifically about fishing, 
And then ultimately, when he moves to Paris in 1921, he will also write for the Toronto Star for the next five to six years, writing stories of international themes. That last full summer that Hemingway's here, 1920, will become even more eventful than the year previous. Hemingway's fishing. He's walking around town. He's squaring some of the younger girls in town here, Grace Quinlan, Marge Bump, who ultimately winds up in some of his fiction. We're in contact with Marge's son right now. He's 91 years old. And the whole family always wondered why Hemingway used Marge's name to talk about their romance, which was more of a friendship than anything. Marge's son does remember specifically that when Hemingway came to visit, by the time he left, he had drank all the gin in the house. The rest of that year, he's kicking around town, again with Marge Bump and some of his friends, Dutch Palethorpe, Lumen Ramsdale. People always say they remember Hemingway during these times. Now, he wasn't a famous person, so you got to take that with a grain of salt, all the, all the stories I hear about Hemingway's time here in northern Michigan. He's got a, a black beret on, knee-high leather boots, and a cape. Anytime you put a cape on and walk around downtown Petoskey, I think people are going to remember you. The summer of 1920 is also filled with camping trips to the Pine Barrens, which is now the Pigeon River State Forest. That's where the Pigeon River, the Black River, and the Sturgeon River convene within just a few miles of each other. And this is a very, very barren, rugged landscape at this time. And these camping trips will inspire one of Hemingway's most famous Michigan stories, the Big Two-Hearted River. Of course, Hemingway did make it to Sceny, Michigan at least one time, which is the site of the Fox River, not the Big Two-Hearted. And all through that story, he keeps mentioning the black. And many of the aspects of this story were really based on experiences he had over in the Pigeon River with his friends camping. At the end of the summer, Hemingway's had a little bit too much fun, and he's ultimately kicked out of the cottage after his 21st birthday, which was called the year of his majority, for some indiscretions that he had that summer. Basically, he's just having a little too much fun with a couple of his friends. And at one point, Mrs. Loomis, who owned the Loomis Cottage down the way from Windermere Cottage, around 12 o'clock at night, went looking for her daughters. And when she couldn't find them, she went looking for Ernest Hemingway. And when she found Ernest Hemingway, she found her daughters. Now, it was pretty an innocent experience because his older sister, Marceline, was also with them, but ultimately, Hemingway's mother kicks him out of the cottage. She'll write a famous letter called the Overdrawn Letter. She tells him that the relationship with the family is like a bank account, and he's been making too many withdrawals and not enough deposits. At the end of the summer of 1920, Hemingway returns to Chicago, where he stays in a series of apartments and also with friends from Horton Bay, Bill Smith, Kate Smith, and their brother, Y.K. Smith. At a party one evening... Hemingway is introduced to Hadley Richardson, who is the roommate of Kate Smith. He immediately becomes attracted to her and falls in love. Within just weeks, he'll tell his family and friends that this is the woman I'm going to marry. Hemingway then goes to St. Louis, proposes to Hadley. Hadley had lost several of her family members and was open to the fact that Hemingway insisted that the wedding be in Horton Bay, not St. Louis, not Chicago, but Horton Bay, Michigan, which he loves so much. The wedding will take place September 3, 1921. Hemingway invites all of his friends from around the country. The groomsmen will all wear white trousers. And the wedding will take place at the Methodist Church, which had been defunct for a few years. Hadley was not so thrilled when she first saw it, but by the time of the wedding, it had been cleaned up and made very presentable. They hire a pastor from Petoskey, Michigan, to officiate the services. And then at the end of the ceremony, they'll all go over across the street to Pinehurst and Shangri-La Cottages, which is where they hold their champagne wedding celebration. After the wedding, they'll wind up honeymooning over at Windermere. They row across the lake. They spend the evening. It was very, very cold in the cottage that night, and they had to sleep in front of the fireplace. The next morning, they wake up, and they're both really sick. (laughs) We don't know if it was food poisoning or the flu, but boy, they were really knocked down for a good week. 
After this, there'll be some fun around the lake and the cottage before they head into Petoskey so Emmyway can in- introduce Hadley, his new wife, to all the local girls he passed up in order to marry her. Hadley and Ernest Hemingway had decided at this point that they're going to go to Italy and live in post-war Europe for pennies on the dollar. So as they're making plans to head to Italy, the Hemingways are invited to a party at Y.K. Smith's apartment. Y.K. Smith was in advertising and was very well connected to the literary world of Chicago. At this party that night, Sherwood Anderson shows up. Sherwood Anderson is one of the top writers in the country at the time. He had just returned from a trip to Paris and encouraged the Hemingways not to go to Italy, but to go to Paris. He gives them five letters of introduction to such people as Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound, and Sylvia Beach, who owned Shakespeare and Company, the famous bookstore. Because of these connections made in northern Michigan, the Hemingways, three months after being married in Horton Bay, Michigan, will find themselves at the epicenter of the art scene in the 1920s, again, all through connections made in Horton Bay. Once the Hemingways relocate to Paris, Hemingway will hang a map of northern Michigan on the wall and start writing his Michigan sketches. These will be considered some of his best short stories. and At least five of these short stories take place right in Horton Bay. In 1925, Hemingway receives critical acclaim and international stardom when he releases The Sun Also Rises, which showcases his revolutionary style of prose. Hemingway will be considered the most influential writer of the 20th century based on his new style of writing. Hemingway will not return until 1947 to northern Michigan. In a series of letters from his mother and sister Ursula, when asked why he doesn't return, he says it's because it's the purest part of my memory, and I don't ever want to distort that. When Hemingway does return to northern Michigan, he looks up his good friend Dutch Palethorpe. He looks up his good friend Irene Gordon. He'll stay a day and a half and then have his last lunch at the City Park Grill, where I was told they drank their lunch like they did in 1919. And then he will head north, turn left on US-2, and that'll be the last documented time that Ernest Hemingway visits northern Michigan, although he will often return in his fiction. One of the last stories Hemingway was working on at the time of his life was The Last Good Country, and you'd think he was writing it as he stood in Horton Bay. I think what's so special to me about Hemingway's writing style is that it captures the human element or condition that is universal to us all, and in a timeless way. His style was also such that the stories can be reinterpreted depending on the mood of the reader, often very simple on the surface, with strong and melancholy undertones. And again, for a man who lived life to the fullest and enjoyed life so much, there's so much emphasis on his death. Hemingway had stopped drinking prior to his death. He had diabetes, writer's block. He was beginning to lose his vision. And the final blow really came being forced out of Cuba, not by uh, Castro, but by the Americans. He said he'd been apolitical since the 1930s and didn't want any part in the politics that were going on at that time. He was told by his friend, a delegate, that they were using words like treason and traitor in Washington, D.C., and they couldn't have such a well-known American author living off the coast of Florida in a now-communist country. Hemingway loaded up his 17-piece Louis Vuitton travel set and left Cuba forever, leaving behind all of his artifacts, his manuscripts, trophies, personal belongings that are still housed there to this day. Another aspect of Hemingway's death that's been explored in a recent book is the amount of concussions he suffered as a young man, the first being the traumatic experience of being blown up in World War I. If we look at the football players and wrestlers that are now struggling with suicide and depression, we can see that this probably did not help his condition at all, especially based on his prior disposition to bipolar episodes. Here in Northern Michigan, we really like to embrace the kinetic Hemingway, though, 
the young smiling boy with his whole life ahead of him, the boy who turned Michigan into an idyllic playground. Many of you may have heard by now that Ken Burns is making a film about Hemingway's life. I strongly urge you to check out Young Hemingway, The Path to Paris, Dr. George Colburn's film that I've been working on with him for the last eight years that really is a comprehensive look at the Michigan years. You can find that film in a link via younghemingway.com. And this year, 2021, the village of Walloon Lake is also hosting a Hemingway Homecoming with festivities, which will conclude with the dedication of a statue on Labor Day 2021 of Ernest Hemingway, one of Northern Michigan's most famous ghosts. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. And please join us for future episodes.